and welcome to my Fashion Stories Box podcast, a podcast about stories in fashion history. I am Catherine, and I am so glad to welcome you here. Let's discover together interesting facts about fashion and history and fashion history. The Middle Ages are not the funkiest period, especially when it comes to fashion. However, this is an era, believe me, full of contradictions and surprises. We see the influence of the religion increasing decade per decade and a new conservatism dictating the rules of the society. And, at the same time, we see the development of a new lifestyle, promoting a kind of free love, the finamor. This contradiction, of course, aroused my curiosity, and I decided to research a bit more about that period and its lifestyle. In this new episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast, we won't cover all the Middle Ages. I will focus on the 12th century only. Why? Well, because this is the century of the finamor, the courtly love. Together, we will discover more about this 12th century society. We will also learn more about the Finamor and the lifestyle it dictated. And together with Eleonore of Aquitaine, Queen of France and then Queen of England, sponsor of minstrels, and maybe the most powerful woman of that time, we will look at the way people used to dress and how fashion was significant of their time. I don't know about you, But I always associated the Middle Ages with a backward society through the development of a religious fanatism. The main color I associate with that time is black, and it seems I am not the only one, as the Middle Ages are commonly referred to as the dark time. It's a period of plague, witches, the church, crusades, no medicines. Well, At least, these are some of the many stereotypes I had about that time. However, as everything, the Middle Ages weren't that black and white time our history books wanted us to believe. It seems the Middle Ages were more colorful and free than we are tempted to think they were. Not to deny it was a period full of contradictions, of course. And I am here to review my stereotypes and maybe yours too. The Middle Ages are set to start around the end of the 5th century and to end around the end of the 15th century. Historians link the beginning of the Middle Ages with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476, or for others with the christening of Clovis, king of the Franks, in 496, and it ends with the period of discovery, notably the discovery of the Americas by Christopher Columbus in in 1492, or for some, with the Ottomans taking Constantinople and ending the Eastern Roman Empire or Byzantine Empire in 1453. And to show the medieval period is not a uniform succession of 10 centuries during which nothing happened until the 15th century, Historians also divided into two main parts, the first Middle Ages from the 5th century to the 11th century and the second Middle Ages from the 12th century to the 15th century. 
The period I will focus on is part of the Second Middle Ages, the 12th century. I will come back to that Second Middle Ages or High Middle Ages in a future episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast, as this Second Middle Ages are also very interesting regarding the birth of fashion. But more on this later. The 12th century is an interesting century by itself. In Europe, this century is considered as a rebirth century, an era of prosperity is about to start, stimulated by a favorable climate. Clement winters and dry summers will enable the agriculture to flourish and the population to grow. Some innovations will also take place, place as water mills, plots, horses and carriages, and windmills by the end of the century. The Crusades will lead to more contacts with the Orient, not only with the Byzantine Empire, but also with the Arab world. It will lead to the discovery of Arab sciences, including math, astronomy, and medicine. The Europeans will also rediscover ancient Greek philosophers and ancient Roman writers. All of this will have an influence on the development of the new medieval society, including the concept of Finamor. So, technically, what is the Finamor? Finamor is a lifestyle, a conception of love and relationships between men and women, and more. Let me explain you. Finamor means pure love in Occitan, a language which was spoken during the Middle Ages in the south of France. Then it spread to the north of the country and other countries. It can be associated with another concept, the concept of courtly love. It was about an ideal of life at the court during the medieval period, linked with a code of manners and gallantry. The Fidamor is more than just a code or a lifestyle. It's an art, the art of complex love ruled by different rules to follow. It started to be developed by minstrels through poetry. Poems were about noblemen, most of the time knights, who had to undergo physical and moral trials to win the love of their ladies. The lady had to be inaccessible, from a higher social class, most of the time married to the Lord the Night serves, and the lady controls the relationships, the desire and the step through which the nobleman had to go before reaching her. It's all about respect and the attention towards human feelings and sensations. The finamor is about the true and respectful love a man has for a woman or a woman for a man. And if both parts respect the rules, they tend towards the ultimate goal, which is shared love and pure happiness. However, before reaching these shared joys and pure happiness, the heroes has to undergo a series of changes and only the woman can decide the next steps. She has the power in channeling and intensifying the desire both parts, and especially the man, can feel. 
So basically, this finamor could be called a religion of love, a religion of free love. It is about a lifestyle out of dogma, as this type of love was usually felt by a single man, a knight, for a married woman. It is a bit like the promotion of elder adultery, as indeed courtly love was not only about feelings, but also about the physical realization of the desire. The concept of finamor is anchored in the senses, in the body, in the spirit, in the soul. It's about listening and respecting one's things and senses. There is no external influence as social or cultural. And this concept is very interesting because it is in complete contradiction with the medieval period, the feudalism and all these diplomatic weddings. Not to mention the influence of the religion in the way relations between men and women should happen. And it gives far more power to women and the realization of their own desire before the men's one. A première, to be honest. Finamor started as poems in the south of France and then evolved into novels over time as it reached the north of France. The concept of Finamor will also change. If at the beginning it was a promotion of free love outside the rigid frameworks of the wedding institution, over time it will integrate the traditional morality to preserve the social codes of the time as well as the religion. Finamor won't be found only in adultery, as it used to be, but inside a wedding of love and the strengthening of the feelings of the spouses. This particular medieval art of living takes its origins in the Orient, in the Levant. The entry door will be the Arabo-Andalusian literature, which will inspire the minstrels of the south of France. To this will be added the mythology and historical characters of the antiquity, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, Celtic legends as the King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, and the introduction of the supernatural as the fairies, and then the chanson geste with epic heroes and Charlemagne. However, the finamor wouldn't have had such an impact without the endorsement of powerful sponsors who will help spreading the genre. The first one will be Guillaume IX of Aquitaine, Duke of Aquitaine, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, duchy of the Kingdom of France. It is said he started to write poetry after his coming back from a crusade and his stay in Antioch, modern Antakya, from 1101 to 1102. He was even nicknamed Guillaume de Minstrel. This important man is no other than the grandfather of another important personality of that century, Eleonore of Aquitaine, who would also sponsor minstrels and help spreading the concept of Fenamore. As authors, you have Chrétien de Troyes, French poet, and Marie de France, daughter of Eleonore of Aquitaine and Louis VII, King of France, who was the first female poet in Europe writing in another language than Latin. 
If you haven't heard about Marie de France, you might have heard about Chrétien de Troyes, though. He is considered as the father of medieval literature and chivalric romances, and is the author of novels around the legend of the King Arthur, as Lancelot, the Knight of the Court, Perceval, and the Holy Grail. Taking inspiration from the Greek and Roman mythology, having translated Ovid and his concept of love, he would spread courtly love through his novels. If the names of King Arthur, Lancelot or Guenièvre don't ring a bell, then maybe Tristan and Isot, a medieval chivalric romance told through different variations during the 12th century, would, as it is all about courtly love too and considered as the epitome of the genre. I mentioned a very powerful woman who acted as a sponsor for Finamore, Eleonore of Aquitaine. In France, we know her as Alinor of Aquitaine. As we saw, her grandfather was already versed into poetry. Who was she and why does her name may remind you something? Eleonore of Aquitaine was born around 1122 and would die around 12.04 at the beautiful age of 82 years. Dates or even venues of her birth or death are not precise because at that time, events like that weren't registered in the same strictness as today. Her father was Guillaume X, Duke of Aquitaine and Count of Poitiers, and her mother was Eleanor of Châtellerault. The Duchy of Aquitaine at that time represented almost half of the Kingdom of France. Little Eleonore was coveted by many, as you can imagine. The court of Aquitaine was also one of the finest of the 12th century, even more prestigious than the one of the King of France. Eleonore would be raised as every noblewoman of her time. She would learn Latin, literature, music, horse riding, and hunting. She would be bathed, in the poetry of the minstrels and in courtly love, luxury, and beauty. However, Eleonore of Aquitaine is better known as the woman who married two kings. She first married Louis VII, King of France, in 1137, with whom she would have two daughters and from whom she would divorce several years later. Indeed, the two spouses didn't really get along, not to mention that the court of France didn't like her because she was a bit too beautiful, free spirit and intelligent, and of course, she had a bad influence on the political decisions taken by the king. Nevertheless, she was suspected of adultery by with her uncle, Raymond of Poitiers, during a stay in Antioche during the Second Crusade in 11. 48. Or, at least, this is what people wanted to believe and the type of rumors they would spread. The fact is that during that stay in Antioche, Louis and Eleonore went, went into a fight and she asked for divorce due to consanguinity. It was, at that time, the only valid reason for the church to accept a divorce. And, in 1152, 
the marriage between Louis VII, King of France, and Eleanor of Aquitaine was cancelled. She became, again, the most thought-after wife, having escaped to two attempts of kidnapping. But she had her eyes on another person, Henry Plantagenet, with whom she met some years ago. She married him in 1152, and in 1154, she became Queen of England, as Henry Plantagenet was crowned Henry II of England. She would take with her the Duchy of Aquitaine, which would transit from being part of the French kingdom to being part of the English kingdom. They will have eight children together, among whom Richard I, or Richard the Lionheart. Eleonore of Aquitaine is a controversial figure of the Middle Ages. She symbolizes this free, powerful woman of the 12th century, an enlightened and pleasant Middle Ages. A Middle Ages so different from the one we are used to and the stereotypes we have about that period. Somehow, her personality, her actions, force us to have a new viewpoint on that time, to go outside our comfort zone. The medieval society wasn't only about religion, it was also about freedom, freedom for women to live and love the ones they wanted. The medieval society wasn't fixed and all backward, it was full of contradictions and usage, which are still governing our modern society, or at least influencing it. Let's jump now to the main question of our episode. How did we dress at the time of Eleonore of Aquitaine? What was the fashion of the 12th century? Well, to be honest, the way of dressing for men and women at that time was quite simple, nothing very fancy or extravagant. During the first part of the Middle Ages, the first Middle Ages, classes didn't change much. Their principles will be based on the Roman way of dressing with tunics as the main clauses. Moreover, under the influence of Christianity, clauses will be used to hide the curves of the bodies, to blur the gender differences. Men and women would be dressed in similar ways, with several layers of clauses. What would be underlined was the social status. Clothes and other accessories will be used to show off the wealth and social positioning of people. Depending on the type of fabrics, the quality of the materials, and even the colors, you could have, from the first sight, plenty information about the status of the man or the woman in front of you. During the 12th century, the main fabrics used were wool, silk, linen, cotton, muslin, and hemp. Silk, cotton, and muslin were usually imported, thus more expensive and reserved to the elite. They were considered as luxury. Linen, depending on the quality and the fineness of the threads, and particularly particularly hemp, were usually used for clothes worn by lower working classes as artisans and peasants. With the Crusades and exchanges with the Orient, other fabrics would enter the market as velvet and Damascus fabrics. Colors also. 
played an essential role in signaling the social belonging of people, and the medieval people were fond of bright colors. Reds, blues, greens, yellows, purples, black, tones of browns are color usually represented in illustrations we have from these times. Each color had, of course, their own meanings linked with the religion, but also with status. Some colors, as red or blue, were difficult to produce, making them more rare, thus more expensive, thus a luxury. People able to have clothes dyed in such colors were part of the high society. The king, his family, or rich noble families, as the one of Eleonore of Aquitaine. Embroideries also could be used in the embellishment of clothes. Again, embroideries weren't accessible to everybody. Only the wealthiest could have the means to afford them. If we now look a bit more into details on the shape of the dresses, as I told you earlier, simplicity was the rule. Simplicity and modesty. If we analyze how Eleonore of Aquitaine would get dressed every day, these are the main garments she would wear. As underwear, she would have worn a chance, a chemise, made from crepe fabrics or even silk. This chemise was usually white, featuring long sleeves, long up to the ankles. It could have embroideries at the neck, the wrists, all of the sleeves and at the bottom. She might have draped her breast in a muslin piece of fabrics, acting as a bra. And she might have not, but she wouldn't have worn a corset. She would have completed her undergarment with some stockings in linen, wool or silk she would have tied at her legs, just under the calf, with a sort of garter. It seems that this chains... This chemise could also have been worn alone, without another tunic on the top, especially during the summer months or as an indoor dress. On the top of this first tunic, Eleonore of Aquitaine would have worn a second one, the bliot. This bliot acted as a gown, and the main characteristic of it was the sleeves. Indeed, representations of that time show very long and large sleeves, the ones of the blio were fitted at the beginning of the arms and then would gain length and width to reach the floor. A visual effect was researched with the sleeves. Usually the sleeves of the under tunic were slim, fitted to the arms, while the ones of the outer tunic, the blio, were larger and longer, showing the under tunic sleeves. The bliot sleeves could feature pendant curves, wide curves, or could be narrow at the top and then flaring up to the floor. The general silhouette obtained with these two pieces of garments was a long and lean one. No extra volume added under the skirt to put the emphasis on the hips or the waist, for example. However, what we can notice from the 12th century is that the silhouette started to be more fitted at the torso. More tailoring was involved. This fitting aspect was achieved with a lacing on the sides of the blio or in the back of it. The blio itself was done in different types of materials. As the most powerful woman of her time, Eleonore of Aquitaine would have access to the best fabrics at her disposal. 
silk, wool, linen, brocade, damask, velvet, tied in the fanciest corals and embroidered. Her sleeves would have been long and wide, underlined with embroideries or white with fur. On the top of the blio, women would generally wear a belt. The belt was used to tighten the tunics at the waist level to ease the movements. Then the belt started to be used to hang other accessories as a purse or keys. Handbags weren't a thing at that time, and having everything around the waist at hand's reach was quite handy. The belt was usually long, closed with a buckle or a knot with a part hanging in the front. As outerwear, Eleonore of Aquitaine would have worn a mantle, a long cape garment fastened with a ribbon. The mantle could be lined with fur or decorated with fur elements. She would have worn this mantle to travel or to horse riding together with a pair of gloves. The main hairstyle of the time for women was to have their long hair separated by a part in the middle and braided into two long plates hanging in the front. The fashion of that time dictated to have braids as long as possible, almost reaching the floor, and extra hair could be added as extensions to reach the desired length. Ribbons could be added in the braids and the hands uh, could be decorated with jewelry clasps. On her head, Eleonore of Aquitaine would have put a veil and on the top of her veil as Queen of France, then Queen of England and Duchess of Aquitaine, she would have worn a crown. Veils could be worn in different manners, loosely put on the head and fully hanging on each side and in the back, featuring a band at the forefront draped in on the shoulder, crossed under the chin. In some sculptures, you can notice a piece of fabrics going from one here to the other and under the chin. This was achieved with a linen band. It was here to only show the face of women as an act of modesty. Another fashionable veil styling was called the wimple. It was a fine scarf of white linen or silk aiming at covering the neck. Its center was placed under the chin and each end was fastened above the ears. The wimple was worn in combination with a veil and it is something that you could still see being worn by Catholic nuns. And... What about the violent knight who would have proclaimed his love for you by going through the challenges of the final How did he dress? As he would have get ready to take your colors during the upcoming tournament and prove his courage to his lord and lady, our violent knight would have put on his underwear composed of a chains, as for women, a long tunic with his brachae, the ancestor of men's underpants. He would have them put on his shoes, the ancestors of the pants, and his blio, a long tunic up to the calf or the ankles, open in the front and in the back to allow easier movements. To make an impression on you after the tournament, he would have, of course, worn on your name. His blio would have been from the finest material the richest corals, featuring long and large sleeves with embroideries at the neck, in the front, and 
at the sleeves. Of course, to fight this tournament, he would have to wear his armor, composed of a paletot under tunic, a long male shirt split on each sides, male horses, a face shield, a hem- helmet with a nose guard, a cuirass, a shield, and at his waist, his sword and a spear. As he would have entered uh, the tournament's field on his horse, he would have come to the tribune where you would have been standing with your lord to salute you. You would have thrown him a scarf for him to attach as his arm or helmet, making him your official champion knight. Of course, this is an overly romanticized version of the knight in this context of Finamor during the 12th century. The armors were so heavy it was impossible for them to get ready alone and to sit on their horses alone. And once they were on the floor, again, they couldn't sit up alone, making them vulnerable. If we now look at how men looked like during that time, we can notice that they featured a longer hairstyle, up to the shoulders. They wore beard and mustaches. On the top of the main outfits I mentioned earlier, they would also wear mantles and hooded capes with bonnet-like hats. The shoes were usually made from leather and widely inspired by the Byzantine shoes types, the poulen, featuring long and pointed endings. And sleeves were the object of all attentions, preluding of their importance in the coming centuries. A bigger variety of sleeves started to develop. Close-fitted sleeves, elbow-length sleeves, sleeves of the outer tunic, the blio, tailored in a way to show the shins, the chemise, sleeves, sleeves fitted at the top and becoming larger and longer towards the wrists. The 12th century and its finamore heart of living might not be the most important part of the Middle Ages, especially when it comes to dresses. However, this century, considered as the medieval Renaissance period, will set the ground for development of a new silhouette, and for men, and for women, which will start developing throughout the the 13th century, and especially the 14th century, leading not only to the use of clauses for social differentiation, but also for gender differentiation. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of my Fashion Stories Box podcast dedicated to the Middle Ages, the courtly love, and fashion during the 12th century. I hope this episode made you review this period and the stereotypes you might have about the medieval people. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen your podcast, to connect with me on Instagram and Facebook to complete the podcast with some visuals, and... If you like my podcast, feel free to leave a comment or a review. I would really appreciate it. I am Catherine, and this is my Fashion Stories Box podcast, a podcast about stories in fashion history. See you next time for a new Fashion Story Box. Mm-hmm.